you're not just sort of forwarding the alert, you're making a judgment call, you're making some human decisions about that data. And that's really, I think, the strengths, bringing the heavy lifting of the AI and ML alongside with the, the nuanced decision-making power of the analyst, that the two can go hand in hand really well if you design the system appropriately. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Dr. Brenton Cooper, CEO and co-founder of Fivecast. And today we're discussing national security, which is now a big data challenge. Brenton, thank you so much for joining. I've heard wonderful things about you in the market. Our close close friends of mine speak very highly of you. So I'm very glad to have you on the show today when national security and cybersecurity combine makes a very interesting topic. Chris, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So I want to sort of start with your lay of the land, Brenton, when it comes to national security. So what are your thoughts? Now, typically, this is a cybersecurity podcast. I have touched on national security before, but I think it'd be wonderful to get a bit of an overview from yourself. Yeah, thanks, Carissa. The national security landscape for Australia is evolving really quickly, but it is evolving in a way that a lot of the Western powers are seeing as well. So if you look at some of the communication coming out of the US government, the Department of Homeland Security, they identify like four or five different themes that are really affecting their national security. And they're quite consistent with what Australia is seeing as well. So those those areas you can roughly group into sort of great power competitions. So looking at you know the the, the rise of China and Russia, transnational organized crime. So think there human trafficking, wildlife trafficking, drug drug trafficking, cyber threats to the homeland, which is probably you know, more akin or aligned with uh, that cybersecurity focus that you have. Uh, and then foreign influence activity and domestic extremism. They're, they're probably the five major threats to national security. And I think Australia is seeing those as we speak. So talk to me a little bit more about foreign influence. What does that mean specifically? Well, foreign influence, it's, a, it's an area that's gaining a lot of attention at the moment. It's really about non-state or state actors trying to enact some influence over the activities of the democratic processes in Australia, whether that's being to influence the outcome of elections or the outcome of policy decisions. It's influenced by other states trying to trying to change the landscape for um, that policy setting and, and how things are being uh, assessed and measured um, by the, uh, the government of the day. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting because these are the common questions that people are asking from a cybersecurity perspective, like, well, like, was it a state actor or was it not or who was it that are conducting some of these cyber breaches that we're reading in the press? So, okay, I want to zoom out just for a second. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me because I do interview people around the world, different you know, various levels about different things, and it's probably from you obviously know a lot more about national security now, would you say from your experience that maybe in Australia, we're not really discussing this enough. Now, I say this because in the US, now I guess there are reasons for this, that they're a little bit more outward facing when it comes to this. Because recently, a lot of people actually just, I don't know, randomly been asking me about what are the current affairs on like national security. And I'm sort of not seeing as much being spoken about it in comparison to the US. Do you have any sort of insight around that? Well, that's interesting. I, I see it. You know, most days in the media these days, 
different forms, whether it's comment on, you know, the Chinese influence in islands and Papua New Guinea. That's been a, a real topic of conversation recently. Perhaps it's um it's where I'm getting my news. Perhaps that's what's making the difference here. But those sorts of things. And then also, you know, the Russia's foreign policy and invasion of the Ukraine, the Chinese posturing towards Taiwan. They're all major, major geopolitical events and are getting daily uh, coverage in the media. So, and, and they all impact Australia's national security. Sorry, Benton, just to clarify, would you say that Australia talks about it more than the United States? Or I think that's sort of like, I, from my understanding, the US seem to talk about national security more than perhaps Australia does. Would you say that's correct? Oh, yeah, I say that probably is. I mean, the US is a very patriotic society. They have a, a large military, a large big government apparatus. And so there is a bit of a focus on it. Um, I think yeah, you see that all the, their way of life, that the military presence is an ever-present force, not so much in Australia. And possibly, you know, their focus on foreign policy might be higher because of that as well. Yeah, sure. Okay, then that definitely makes sense. So, okay, now... As I mentioned at the start of the show, now national security is now a big data challenge. And you mentioned that technology, technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning offer tools to look for needles in haystacks. Now, I always like looking for a needle in a haystack. So what do you mean by this specifically? Like I've, I've, had, I've got some high level ideas, but I'm keen to, to hear it from you. Yeah, I think in this, this game of law enforcement and intelligence and d- defense, analysts are, are being overwhelmed with data. There's so much data coming into them, so much data to be analyzed. And, and really they're facing four major challenges there. It's the, the volume of the data, the velocity or the speed at which it arrives, the variety of the data, and also checking the veracity of the data. So it's sort of the four Vs of big data. And whether you're a law enforcement analyst or a military analyst, you're still suffering sort of the same problem. How do you grapple with that data? How do you gain insights from it? And that's where AI and machine learning can really add some value. I was part of a, a cooperative research center years ago, and we were looking at data and analytic techniques for the, the Australia's national security community. And I was speaking with an Intel analyst from one of the police forces. This is quite some time ago. And he was telling me about all the great work that he was doing and doing geospatial analysis and network analysis and sort of mapping out the connections between a serious and organized crime network and what they were doing, looking at their online transactions and their banking transactions. At the time, I, you know, it was fascinating to hear him speak. It was probably, you know, the most lucid definition of analysis that I'd, I'd, I'd heard from, from someone. And I said, oh, great, you know, what sort of tools are you using to, to do all that wonderful analysis? And he goes, oh, I've got four sheets of butcher's paper up on my office wall. So oh what we're trying to do, I oh know it was, was, was scary and, and at the time thinking of you know, the tools that have been given to this, this person to do their job. And what we want to do with AI and ML is actually make that process a whole lot easier so that the, the analyst can be presented with the insights, the process data all connected together so they can really quickly get to you know, the problem at hand and they can apply you know, what humans do best, which is thinking about the nuance, you know, thinking about why was this doing, why was this happening, who was doing it, uh, and then thinking about, you know, how do they get to the next level of analysis. So the AI and ML um, is, is really there to just enable the analyst and, and get them quickly insights from the data so that the analyst can do what they're best at, which is make decisions. 
Okay, so a couple of questions in there. Now, you mentioned the four Vs. So I've got volume, velocity, veracity. What was the fourth one? Variety. Variety, that's right. Thanks for sharing those. I think that's a great way to approach it and easy to remember. Now, I want to get into, what about alert fatigue? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I've spoken to a number of people, whether it's OSINT related, but also people that you know work in threat intelligence about alert fatigue. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, alert fatigue's a, a valid concern. And really that relates to having some sort of system sift through data and then provide automated automated streams of alerts that have to be reviewed by the analyst. And obviously, if those alerts are coming in and there's too many what we call false positives, you know, alerts that don't actually relate to a threat, then the analyst will quickly tune out <clears throat> from those from those alerts. So there's a balance to be gained between you know, getting good coverage of the actual problem, but then not overwhelming the analyst with uh, too many false false alarms. So um, that's one particular style of using AI and ML is to provide alerts to an analyst to look at. There's another style, which is probably more along lines what I was talking to, which is really providing analysts with processing tools or process data so that they can essentially noodle around in the data and find the alert themselves almost, you know, find out what's, uh, what's interesting in the data because it's already been pre-processed and contextualized for them. I was going to my next question around false positives, but you definitely answered that. Now, I have used to be a reporting analyst, so I understand data. I understand about you know what we should focus on, how to tell that story. Would you say then maybe people historically haven't, like you mentioned before, around the you know the right types of alerts that people should be focused on? Would you say that perhaps people have missed what to focus on? They've sort of maybe focused on the wrong type of alert, which tells that story, because then once you get that story, you can create that narrative, which then gives insights, potentially if you're, you know, if you're working in consulting and you're presenting it back to your client, but also if you're internal as well. I mean, I used to be internal. So I used to pull this data, find out what was important about it. And I wasn't just reporting on it because reporting is one thing, but then it's like, okay, well, I actually derive some insights from this. Like, what does this actually mean? Do you have any sort of insight on that or anything you're sort of doing in that space? Yeah, I think it's a really important distinction that sort of relates to your alert fatigue question is that, you know, we shouldn't really be viewing AI and ML as a, uh, one of my tradecraft advisors here at Fivecast, he talks about the, uh, the do my job button. You know, it's, it's not about getting artificial intelligence and machine learning to you know, do the job of the analyst. We're not trying to do that. If anyone's hoping that you can do that, you're probably sort of, you know, barking up the, uh, the wrong tree, so to speak. What we really want is to use the AI and ML to sort of simplify the decision process, still have the analyst making the decision, you know, processing and refining the, the insights, just as you mentioned, you know, you're reporting on it. You're not just sort of forwarding the alert. You're making a judgment call. You're making some human decisions about that data. And that's really, I think, the strengths, bringing the, you know, the heavy lifting of the AI and ML alongside with the, the nuanced you know, decision-making power of, of the analyst, that the two can go hand in hand really well if you design the system appropriately. Yeah, that's really interesting, Breton. Now, I'm really curious, how do you sort of decide like what's important, like what alerts you should be focusing on to then, you know, derive some insights from it and to sort of really inspect that a little bit more? How does that sort of conversation start? Yeah, there's, there's probably two ways to view it. The first is, to be, obviously, we need to be guided by subject matter experts. So if you're looking at a particular problem, whether it's a, a cyber monitoring system or, um, you know, a, a human trafficking system, you're 
you want to understand and then sort of try and codify the, the knowledge of the human analysts because they're the experts at it. So, you know, what is interesting to them? What are they looking for when they're doing their analysis? You know, what are the indicators that they're looking for? And, and with that, we can use the AI or the, the machine learning to try and extract those indicators from the data. Once we've got those, we, we can then use processes like clustering or classification to try and group up multiple indicators. So you get a sort of a, a compilation of, of results, if you want, that reinforce each other. And that's where the, the AI and machine learning can really sort of uh, add an extra layer of filtering, an extra layer of confidence on, on the data that's being presented to the analyst. But at its heart, it's a, it's a process that's driven by the knowledge that the analyst has to start with. Okay, yeah. So that's really interesting. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. So basically, after you know, AI, ML do their job, you get clustering and classification, which effectively is like a thematic theme. So you have to start to see trends. Is that right? Well, it depends what you're looking for. If you're, if you're after sort of a, a thematic situational awareness picture, then absolutely. But if you're down looking at you know, individual behaviours, you can still look for those indicators, those, those indicators, whether it's, for example, you might be looking at progression towards extremism. You know, people go away and codify up, you know, what are the indicators that you should be looking at? So they can be quite specific to the, to the investigation or the case you're looking at or they could be more strategic and more thematic as well. So it really depends on the scenario that you're trying to build a solution for. Wow, that is really interesting. Now, I'm just going to ask, because that's my job is push the envelope. Do you, like, could you sort of give an example? So you talk about extremism. Is there anything specific that sort of stands out that you, that you look for, that you, that you notice, like, or is there anything you can share? Oh, look, uh, probably not. Um, the, the, some of the agencies we work with, their their expertise is in building up those indicators. I think they might consider that their special source. Now I'd like to address how the big data challenge lends itself to problems that exist in cybersecurity and national security. Now, I sort of touched on this before. When, they, when you combine the two, they become more powerful. So I'm really keen to hear your th- thoughts because you are on, you know, the other side of the fence that people I don't typically, you know, interview. So I'm really keen to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, you, you sort of touched on cybersecurity there, and obviously there's the you know the recent Optus breach and the, the data breach from Medibank, and, and that's one type of sort of cybersecurity risk. And there's a whole range of approaches you can take to look at that sort of data leakage, whether it's you know protection from malicious insiders or advanced persistent threats. Um, and you, you want to try and flag that as an oper- to the operator as a suspicious activity. You know, more broadly, if we look at, um, and this is probably continuing the theme that I've got here, if we look at some work that we were doing for, you know, US SOCOM, they have this concept of a hyper-enabled operator. And it's really trying to put the the human at the centre of the decision-making and present them with the right data at the right time and in the right context. Really, that comes down to understanding what their job is, understanding the decisions that they're trying to make and then working out how do you process the raw data that they are trying to make those decisions upon? How do you process it and put it into a, a context which makes it easy for them to make those decisions? In, in some ways, just to sort of you know, make that tangible, some of you, your listeners might be familiar with the outputs of the, the Google knowledge graph. So when you do a, mm-hmm. you open up Google and you, you do a search on your, you know, your favorite sporting team. So yeah, for me, it could be the, uh, the Adelaide Crows or the, the Brooklyn Nets basketball team. The Google knowledge graph has gone out and sort of processed all of the information that's, you know, available on that particular sporting team. 
and extracted sort of key actors, key events, key entities from it. So, and then they summarize that all in a, a pane of information on the side of the Google search results. So if you type in Brooklyn Nets, you'll quickly get a, a view of, you know, who's on their playing roster, who are the current, who's the current team, who's the coach, potentially what's the salary cap that they're working on, what are their last five game results, where do they sit in the ladder. All of that has been automatically extracted and then summarized into the Google Knowledge Graph. And that's the type of capability that AI and machine learning can bring to problems in cybersecurity and national security. So bringing them closer together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bring them closer together. So before I get into that, because that's where it gets really interesting from my perspective, you mentioned before that there's a do my job button. Would you say that people, and I mean, it's not their fault, people are, you know, they're they're busy, they're trying to get their head above the wall, especially when you get into the, the cyber world. Would you say that people sort of fall fall back on, well, I've just got to, you know, do my job button because I don't really have that much time. Are you seeing a bit of that as well? Yeah, I mean, there's always elements of that and, and there are systems that sell themselves as a, you know, here's a, here's a do my job button. We, we try and avoid, avoid that, sort of, that sort of approach. We sort of try and avoid that, that language as well. And really it's about trying to make the job easier rather than doing the job. So I, I still think you can't remove the, the analyst's decision-making capabilities and process from that from that you know final output and anyone is that is selling the, the do my job buttons probably you know selling a bit of a false hope i think yeah absolutely and i think you know when people think of artificial intelligence and machine learning they think like oh no a job is going to be replaced i'm like well no it's actually going to be that they're going to be doing like more low level stuff like you know analyzing some of this data at that at that macro level and then can sort of really then you know the analysts can come in and really hone in on that at that micro level and there's still going to be things that get missed and there's still going to be things not everything is addressed right so i think that that's the importance of having someone there to actually make sure like, yes, that makes sense. And to, to focus on, again, like what, what are those, those main sort of ingredients that you spoke about before? And like you said, getting back to whether it's something specific or it is that thematic theme that we're focusing on. So I think that, again, people have asked me about this in the past, like, no, we shouldn't be worried about our jobs being taken away. We should actually be focused on doing more strategic things rather than Perhaps things are a little bit more stock stand and a little bit more mundane, and a little, there's a level of banality in doing those types of jobs. Absolutely, Krishna. I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there. In any way, you know, I think AI and ML, the introduction of it into national security, will just make people's jobs easier. It'll make them more interesting. It'll make them more effective. Their, their job still is still there. It just removes all of that mundane data processing that people spend so much time on today. So they'll effectively be able to do far much more in in the time that they've got. So I now want to focus on with everything that's been going on, you touched on it before, where would you say the biggest gaps are with cyber and national security in Australia? Well, I think one of the big gaps is looking at different types of information. So national security agencies, they're, they're obviously tasked with protecting communities, but Possibly, you know, the use of classified intelligence has become less effective in recent years. It costs more, it's harder to get. And I think there's a, an increasing recognition that publicly available information or from online platforms is useful in the context of national security and cyber intelligence. 
And so I'd see that there's, you know, one of the gaps is really pivoting the organizations to focus much more on the collection and analysis of online information. So you said it costs more. Why does it cost more? Well, to deploy a satellite or, uh, you know, deploy a human intelligence operator is a costly exercise, but to sit there and try and understand from a distance, you know, how the, the Chinese are trying to influence uh, the Solomon Islands, it, it's relatively easy to do by looking at uh, public statements, look at social media, look at online forums, for example, and you get a fairly good picture of, of, of what's happening. I was in a meeting recently with a retired director of the Defence Intelligence over in the US, and he said that you know, 85% of the content in, in intelligence reporting could be garnered from open sources. So that's a, a big, significant chunk that could be pivoted away from expensive collection platforms and move to online collection and analysis. So this is the move to towards OSINT or open source intelligence. Would you say that people, I mean, I have spoken about OSINT in the past, probably not as prolifically as what you're talking about it every single day, but would you say that people still don't maybe understand what OSINT or open source intelligence really is? Yeah, definitely. It's an evolving field and it's an increasingly relevant capability. So I think, you know, people from the, the national security agencies have a, have a natural resistance to it, really about that, that fourth V, the veracity of the data. Do you know who's actually putting that information into the, the online sphere? Do you know if they're doing it you know, with what sort of intent? So that's one of the challenges I think that the national security, security community have been facing. But if you look at sort of even at law enforcement sort of level, sort of, you know, domestic law enforcement, state law enforcement, there's a, a huge amount of valuable information that can be garnered from open source intelligence that can be used to solve crimes, whether that's drug trafficking, whether it's people trafficking, whether it's homicides. We've got examples, not that I can speak about them openly, but of our customers using open source intelligence to, to achieve those outcomes for, for law enforcement and, and overcoming that challenge around veracity of the data. Yeah, this is where it gets really interesting. Now, I don't know whether you watched in the mainstream media a couple of weeks ago, there was a lady that went to an insurance company and said that she was in a car accident, I don't know, her leg was injured or something, and then she, you know, she needed to get further compensation. Then obviously, whether it was OSIN or it was something along those lines that actually saw on our social media that she was climbing the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which obviously would indicate that her leg's fine. Would you say that's an example of how for, especially around the law enforcement side of things or potentially people committing, in this case, it would be fraud. Is that an example of how OSIN works? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty good example. You know, obviously in that case, they've been able to, not that I know the specifics, but in that case, it would seem that they've been able to, you know, identify the person's online footprint, look at the activities of that person's putting out there in the public sphere, public space, and doing it of their own volition. And with that information can go back and sort of, you know, counter the, the claim for, for, for personal injury. So that's, that's definitely an example of how it's being used, probably in that case more in the, the commercial space for fraud detection. But I think there's similar examples that can be used in, in the government space as well. Yeah, and I think that I've, you know, I've tried to explain this to people before around their digital footprint and what's online. Like I'm not using heavy tooling that, that you guys are at Fivecast, but I mean, even just for me, like if I wanted to sort of find something out about people, there's ways and mechanisms to sort of start to pull together 
the narrative and the story about someone. So this is me doing it at a very basic rudimentary level. But when you're starting to get into the capability that you guys offer, that's when you can start to look at things more seriously in a lot more depth. And I guess there's just a lot more complexity with what the stuff that you guys do, which then means lends itself to it's super powerful. Yeah, and I think um, you know there's some big industry and, and, and societal trends that are, are supporting that. I mean, people, you know, obviously social media is relatively new. Online news is is increasing, and, and when I say relatively new, you know, the last ten years. But there is a trend to you know talk more, uh, put more information in, into the into the public realm, and that can be used for you know obviously great purposes to to. In, you know, let people communicate. But there's always this sort of small subgroup in any community where they're communicating about, you know, things that are threats to the community. And that's really where our customers of Fivecast are, are interested in trying to find those, you know, those really bad areas of the online sphere where people are uh, undertaking malicious activities. I heard through someone else as well, like back in the day when we did, I like, had like 9-11 that like Al-Qaeda used to like communicate through like, closed Facebook groups, which I just found super bizarre. Like, do you know anything about that? Like, that just seems like, what? But, I mean, this is going back a long time ago. But apparently, like, to get into the group, like, there was a bit of a process. Like, you didn't just sort of request it and you were in. Like, you had to obviously create a pseudonym account. You had to do all this type of stuff to look legitimate. Um, People eventually got in. I remember reading something about this. But I'm just like, that is just, that just feels so risky to me. Yeah, I mean, it still happens, probably less so on, you know, the, the big social media platforms. What we're probably seeing is more and more of that type of activity, even within closed groups, is, is being moved to the, the fringe platforms, whether that's, you know, you know, Telegram and Gab and Discord or things like that. But it's not so prevalent on the major platforms as, that, as you know, that's, that's our observation. Yeah, definitely not nowadays because, I mean... AI and machine learning probably flagged that type of commentary that's being like put on there. I mean, this was going back like a long time ago, but I just found that really bizarre. So, okay, now I want to understand from you, like, where do you believe there could be better alignment in the space between cyber and national security? Yeah, probably, uh, you know, the, the better alignment, particularly from our perspective, from Fivecast's perspective, is about you know looking into this 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 online world and, and trying to understand how cyber influence is occurring and and how that affects the national security of Australia. So that's probably the, the main focus of us is is looking at you know, democratic resilience, influence campaigns, misinformation campaigns, those types of those types of concerns in the online world. Now, when you say misinformation, do you mean information warfare? Yeah, absolutely. So information warfare is a, a big area of concern for you know, governments around the world. It's, you know, some, some people call it the, the grey zone, if you want, where, where it's a conflict in, a, in, in the online world rather than the, the real world. And it's a, a tool that's used by you know, non-state actors and, and state actors across the world as a very easy to deploy and a hard to stop technique. Yeah, so I've I've done an interview recently. It's actually in in the public now through – it was Stan Woods, who's the head of intelligence from F5, and the whole sort of conversation was around 8 and 10 Twitter accounts are fake, they're bots. And what he explained was, you know, yes, fake followers is one thing, but moving beyond that is actually around how that, you know, if you're controlling like, I don't know, a million Twitter accounts, you can actually then 
create a narrative, which where it gets really scary. And then he sort of spoke at a very high level around the campaigns that were run in the US, like how these types of bots then can, you know, the information warfare can influence people's decision. And I mean, you know, it's nothing like what draws a crowd like a crowd. So if, you know, if I start saying something and then 10 other people join me and then 30 other people, then all of a sudden everyone's going to start saying the same thing. And I think that maybe when you're looking at stuff online, maybe it's hard to detect like some of these these bots, like they they do look somewhat like pretty real, right? If you're not looking at it like through through your lens or my lens, like if you're just like a, I don't know, an everyday Australian, you're not really thinking on those levels. So I think this is the stuff that's really interesting, not just from my, oh, I bought fake followers perspective, but more so what that information warfare can actually be used to particularly manipulate a story and a narrative, which may be completely false. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also there's a, this concept of, echo chambers where um, the same sort of narrative gets reproduced and then amplified within you know, a small community if you want. And so if, if you're a, you know, just your, your average Twitter subscriber and you jump in and you start searching around and you, you find yourself in one of these echo chambers, then you can see this, this same mes- message coming at you from multiple, multiple different spots. And, and some of those will be you know, valid you know, real-world accounts with, with you know, credentials and, and credibility, and they may have picked up that message from some of those, those bot accounts to start with. So it's that transition from the, the bot world into the real world that that's also makes it very difficult to understand where the messages are coming from. Yeah, this is where it gets so interesting. So for example, social media giants, their whole play is to, okay, for example, you like Labradors. They're going to then feed you more Labradors to keep you on the platform because they can charge advertisers more. Like there's this whole theory to it, which I think maybe people seem to forget. And then what, what does that then create? The echo chamber that you're seeing more Labradors and Labradors are the best. And then one thing that concerns me though, is how do we then like validate like what's real and then what's not that real perhaps. And I know, and I say this because, and I think even with my interview with Dan, for example, you know. Back in the day when there's no social media, we only had like media companies that we could listen to. But now that everyone's got social media, everyone then has a voice and opinion, which is absolutely fine and valid. But that if I'm sort of saying up there when I'm manipulating a million Twitter accounts that Labradors are the best, then other people are just going to start buying into it. So do you think that people may get to a stage where they become so like delusional, like with what's correct and, and not? Well, you know, firstly, Chris, uh, I've got a Labrador and Labradors are the best. So uh, I did not know that, by the way. I literally just made that. I swear I didn't do any OSINT on you before this interview. <laughs> there you go. No, I mean, it's a, it's a really valid concern. And, and I know there's some work underway to look at, you know, structural changes to it. So how do you, you know, debunk messages or, or rumors in the online world? And there's efforts to, to sort of counter that. But it's a it's it's a really hard thing to do and, and until you can sort of build in some trust into those social media platforms and trust of the sources verifying or validating their message it's going to be really hard for the the average consumer to work out what is real and what's not real and you make a good point you know back in the you know the old days people got a lot of their news a lot of their information from trusted sources you know the abc or the bbc comes with a a level of trust and understanding of you know that's a that's a you know probably a, a well researched, well thought put through uh, you know opinion piece or, or facts. In the online world, it's hard to do that, so it's a real challenge. There hopefully will be some structural solutions to it, but I think they're many many years away, and, and so we're in this this space of you know how do we grapple with that problem today? 
And like I say that because like even speaking to my friends that or people that I know, for example, I don't know someone that you meet at a barbecue or something that doesn't know you and you start talking to them and then it's just maybe the line of thinking and like how I approach things is just very different. But I'm also from a cybersecurity background. So my level of thinking is like, okay, everyone's guilty until proven innocent type of thing. But then when you're talking to someone else, again, at some like backyard barbecue, it is like, well, they just easily convinced on what someone said online. It's like, well, who is this person? Like there could be anyone that just has an opinion that may have a big following. And all of a sudden that that's that, that influence piece now coming in. And I think I really do think a lot of these big companies, tech companies, have got a lot to answer for because I guess they've then disseminated, like I said, misinformation and now we've got eight and ten Twitter accounts that are fake, which then creates the uh, information warfare side of things. So, I mean, I don't know. And now that you've got Elon Musk then coming in and changing Twitter and there's no censorship, there's no this and that. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just looking at these things. I'm interviewing people like yourself to just really just get some insights around what does all this mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult question and something that you know, governments and national security agencies have to deal with because it has, has real-world ramifications. I think there, there are examples during the, the Clinton-Trump campaign over in the US where foreign agencies were creating protest events, you know, spending a, a few dollars for a few Twitter accounts and, and setting up you know, followers and groups and then putting out a message and actually getting people to arrive at a protest in the US. And it was all run out of you know, the Russian Internet Agency. So it's, it's a very, very difficult problem and it has real-world consequences. Yeah, and I think that's what people probably aren't thinking about and that's why I have the purpose of the show to interview people like yourself to give us those insights. So then what would be your thoughts then to encourage like better alignment then? I mean, you touched on it before with the national and cybersecurity have better alignment, but do you have sort of like any advice perhaps? Look, Carissa, not off the top of my head, we have advice for, for the national security agencies. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, for the consumers, I think you, you, you really have to think about, you know, where you're getting your messages from. Can you, you know, spend a little bit of time to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, who they are, what have they said before? Does all of that look sensible to you before you start sort of going on and, and joining that echo chamber or, you know, espousing the message yourself so it's a maybe a little bit of more personal security if you want you know validating as you say you know a guilty until proven innocent but what about in the terms of like how can cyber security and national security from, i mean from your perspective sort of work in a little bit more lockstep yeah well I, I do think that and i am seeing some some examples of this where there is a lot more focus from defence, from government agencies looking at how the, the online world can really influence the real world. And so there I'm thinking about, you know, issues around democratic resilience. How can you know, Australia's democratic processes, the, 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 the governmental processes be negatively affected by the online sphere and discussions there? And and, and then what processes can we take to actually strengthen the democratic processes in Australia, whether that's actually monitoring these influence campaigns, detecting them, and then countering them in their early stages. So both a technology response and also, you know, people out there talking to those who are being targeted, conveying real information about the, the issues at hand. So there is that alignment happening. I see it in the, the response that the government's taking and, and you know, some of the funding decisions that they're making as well. 
Wow, that's fascinating. I'm really keen to see how that unfolds. So in terms of any closing comments or final thoughts, is there anything, Brenton, you'd like to leave our audience with today? The one thing I'd like to say is that for us, the online world is a, is a key part of national security and people need to, I think, be cognizant when they're, when they're out there engaging in you know, Twitter and, and Facebook and, and these sorts of things, thinking about where the information that they're consuming has come from. You know, how does it sit with other information that they're receiving, be it from you know, personal interactions or be it from you know, newspapers and, and, and TV channels? Is it consistent? before you start believing in what you see online because it's a it's a wild west in the online world. Most definitely. And there's nothing crueler than reading comments on YouTube. So I'm definitely with you when you say wild west. So thank you so much for your, your time, Brenton. I think it was really interesting and really important to have you on the show today to sort of look at national security and how that really lends itself to the cybersecurity. So I think that's a really important message that you shared with my audience today. So thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks for your time and your insights today. Carissa, thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.